I'm I mean, gonna call you first time Jared from now on. First time Jared. First, first time Jared. Everybody needs a first time Jared. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Let's not. And welcome to The Outpost, a podcast about inspired thinking. I'm Lacey, and today we've got Tom making noises. We've got Mark sitting, um, sitting. N- not making noises. <laughs> and, we've, and we've got Jared here. First time, Also sitting. Also <laughs> sitting. First time Jared on the show. Yep. How are you feeling? I'm feeling amazing. I have loved getting the opportunity to listen to the podcast in my own time, and it's just a, such a thrill to be here. Really yeah. happy. Okay, Tom, can you start us off with our first community question? I sure can. All right. Interesting question from the community. I have finally started making the thing I've always wanted to make, but it's turning out to be far less amazing than it seemed in my head. How do you push through a discouraging start? First of all, I think everything seems amazing when it's in your head until you start to try to do something. I heard you say a long time ago, Tom, that that your best ideas will always just kind of be in your head because as soon as you try to bring them into reality, um, it's hard. It's just hard. That's the shower principle. Like every single time I take a shower, I have a million fully formed, perfect ideas. And the second I step out of the shower, they're gone. I need to get like a waterproof tablet in the shower or something. I could just be there to dictate for you. (laughs) Just, just, just sit on the toilet and I just first time Jared in the corner. (laughs) Are you there? First time Jared? Yeah, here to write down your first time ideas. Yes. So what do you do? I mean, have you have you all experienced something similar? You have these ideas in your head and they seem amazing, but then when you actually start to work through them and feel the challenges, they seem less amazing overall? I, I think anyone, you know, who's ever made anything ever has experienced exactly this. Mm-hmm. Like the start is almost always discouraging. Yeah, you you have such a desire to make it good and to make it great that it can be paralyzing to get into the mundane parts of it or to to have a little bit of fear of moving forward because of what you want it to be. And I have found that sometimes you just have to do it. In fact, I'm talking to Tom a little bit about doing a writing project that I've been working on because it's taken me a little bit out of my comfort zone for the types of design I usually do. And Tom's like, just write, man, just write, just get into the habit of writing. Just keep going. Don't worry about how good it is do a volume and then something's going to stick at some point. And I've found that that discipline, I think a lot of times will dislodge when you're stuck. It'll help get you dislodged. In writing, and I think this applies to all creative enterprise, the phrase writing is revision has been very helpful to me. Like the idea that the craft of writing isn't sitting down and immediately putting something to paper that's perfect. Writing involves revision like the act of revising is writing and i think it was uh joyce carol oates who's a writer um on her master class she talks a lot about how her first draft of anything is literally just her collecting ideas of what she's going to eventually write about and she holds the first draft to absolutely no standard whatsoever like no one else ever gets to see it. It gets to be absolute garbage. And she just spills out and runs knowing that 
from there, she gets to refine and make the thing that she wants to make and that she's capable of making, but it never comes out the first time you sit down. Mm-hmm. And I think that what both of you are saying, in a way, is to instead of preparing for you know what happens and what do I do if when I start working on this, it doesn't end up looking like I want, to know that a part of any creative process is seeing how this idea can be realized and seeing the, the strengths and the weaknesses of it and how you're going to actually bring it Because it will it always... Forth look not as good as what you imagined, right? I mean, yeah. like, every time you ever start a project, it will, I think it will always look not as good as you imagined in your head. Because it's easy to imagine in your head wonderfulness mm-hmm. and, and without any obstacles. And infinite skill. And infinite <laughs> There's something skill. to be said about finishing a project where you are currently at and letting it be, you know, a part of your progress, an achievement, a milestone that you have achieved, and that even though the end product wasn't exactly what you imagined in your head when you first came up with the idea, it was as good as you could make now, and in the future, when you can make something as good as you thought of originally, you can look back and see the progression and how you came. Yeah, I think it's an unrealistic expectation to think that anything is going to look amazing until it's done, for one, and if you do enough of these types of projects, what you find is it's going to look different in the end than what you imagined anyway so it's going to be a different picture it might be more amazing than you ever imagined and beyond that I think other people might find it amazing even if you don't so you you owe it to yourself to to just do the work Um, do the work when you don't feel like it do the work when it doesn't feel amazing because that's why they call it work this isn't a hobby this is something you signed up to do you know as a commitment um, and you just have to push through. And even Sometimes if you're not getting paid through for it, is through. come into yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, and the original prompt is, I've always, I have finally started making the thing I've always wanted to make. How do you push through a discouraging start? And I think it's important to realize, like, when you sit down and you start working on something, whatever's coming out or however you're feeling is not indicative of what it's going to be at the end, what you're capable of, whether you should be doing this at all, whether this was all a grand mistake. Like, I think the difference between what the person who wrote this question and someone who is a professional at whatever the thing they're making is, the the difference is the professional has learned that what you're feeling is a very standard part of the process to be expected, and they're just really comfortable with it. Yeah. And you haven't experienced it enough to be comfortable with the fact that it sucks at first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, But that is just part of the process, and it doesn't mean you're on some wrong path necessarily. I would also remind people, a.k.a. Lacey, when you listen to this later, remind yourself <laughs> uh, that that what you feel and see when you're inside of a project is very different than what other people feel and see when they see a project from the outside, right? You cannot see the detail of the greatness. You cannot see the impact that something's going to have when you're inside it all day long. You know, when you're, when you're doing the work inside, what does it look like when you're inside something? (laughs) (laughs) It it looks like, like spider hands. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, That's what it feels like when you're inside working on it. But from the outside things, it's always that way, right? People come to your home and they're like, Oh, I love you have such a beautiful home. You know, well, you're inside it all the time. You don't even know. You don't even notice what it is because you're inside it all the time. I think the same is to be said for the work that we do on the projects we try to create too. Yeah, at the early part of a project, sometimes you're expecting a certain acceleration or a momentum as well that just does not exist because you haven't hit stride yet, and 
you have to continue being diligent and pummel that thing and try different things and iterate until you hit something that works. And the only way to do that is with volume, is, is to just keep trying things, especially in the creative field. Like your job is to be creative and to come from a different angle. And the one that you've been, you know, playing out in your head, maybe that doesn't work. So what do you do? Stop or feel stuck? Okay. Well, the only way out of that is to just open more doors, right? Until you find a way out. How many doors are there? 17. You already know the answer to that. (laughs) 17. (laughs) As many as you can imagine. I thought it was 15, but okay. I do what Lacey tells me. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's move on to the next question. Lacey has found two more doors than you. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move on to the next community question. All right. What do you think are the biggest enemies of creativity? Or from a slightly different angle, what are some of the ways you can sabotage sabotage your own creativity? I visualize the enemy of creativity like a character that stands over in the corner like this. Hey, 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 look at me, look at me. Like just constantly, constantly like this. That's the enemy of many things. (laughs) (laughs) Distraction. Yeah. (laughs) But I was trying to imagine it as a character and that's kind of what it looks like to me. And I follow it a lot. I follow that distraction all the time um, rather than sit in my own thoughts and feelings and and actually be creative. Does yours wear a white suit and slowly eat lettuce? No, uh, black and black outfit with sequins. And eating arugula. Yeah, that's really good. There's always some greens. <laughs> it's a healthier way to distract Crunchly people. Crunchily eating greens. So yes, distraction is an easy way to say that. I think distraction is... is like too much input? Yeah, I was going to say, that was going to be my mm. word, is that for me it's input versus output. That while you are inputting, your brain cannot be uniquely outputting. I think that's true. However, I think that the source of it is before that. It's, it's the, the desire to be distracted. It's like my attention span, like my short attention span that wants more, 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 this surface level thing that wants more, 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 more input. Um, so tempering that with less input would be, you know, befriending the ally to creativity Mm -hmm. who wears silver sequins, if you were wondering. The focus of this response has become <laughs> what outfit does <laughs> sleep paralysis personification of take shape nightmare that is distraction. <laughs> it's just a giant mackerel in the corner. <laughs> what about I mean distraction? So that's a that's a fairly common answer, I would think. What else? What else are enemies to creativity? Um well, I think like a we've talked about this before as a group, and I think you mentioned once lack of boredom, mm-hmm. which I think kind of a little bit goes hand in hand with distraction, but there's a there's an art to like putting yourself in a position where boredom exists and your mind is free to wander. It's not just like you said, it's not just a lack of inputs. It's not just go away from the screens, right. but also go away from like stress and other thoughts and like the, the things that are filling your mind. And sometimes those can be fuel, but there's something to be said for, like, just sit. Intentional boredom. And do nothing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I, I remember once, I, I, I always have some reference for something a writer has said. But Neil Gaiman has described, someone asked him once, like, what do you do about writer's block? And he said, I just get bored. He has this little room in his yard outside of his house. It is in, like, kind of nature spot. And he goes and he sits in this room with nothing and just doesn't leave 
until he is bored and his mind slows down and he starts noticing sounds and the breeze and, you know, look at that over there. And he just kind of like lets his mind purge whatever the heck it is doing till eventually he starts working on the problem and comes up with ideas and like all of a sudden his mind goes crazy and he becomes this creative well, but he has to like force himself to get bored Otherwise, he's too busy thinking about other stuff. And getting there is a total process. You know, the um, the amount of time that it takes to defuse and to dilute all of the input that has been coming into your brain so that you can get into that creative space can easily be interrupted. For me, a huge barrier to my creativity is just the number of adult things that need your doing Mm -hmm. and that need your attention throughout the day that, you know, a lot of the times you cannot anticipate, you know, all of a sudden this moment I need to stop doing what I'm doing and go do something completely different that puts my mind in a completely different space, even though I was thinking about what this wizard's doing in this cave. (laughs) (laughs) And what color sequins was it wearing? (laughs) I think sort of what you're describing is a little bit of, like setting mindful blocks of uninterrupted time. Yeah. And that, that I think that type of distraction, you know, if, if you have the capacity in your life to arrange it is an important thing to consider. Like, you know, if you have, let's say three or four hours of true, deeply potent, create creative potential in you every day, like, I know most writers, for example, talk about how when they sit down to write, like most professional writers write two to four hours a day and that's it. And the rest of the day is spent on going on walks or whatever, working on correspondence, editing, but actual writing, they only do like two hours of really solid productivity. And most of them will tell you that the first 30 or 40 minutes of that is them letting everything go and getting into a flow. And then it's just like an hour and a half of just like solid production. But then if right when that starts, someone, you know, knocks on the door and comes in and they say, you know, what should I do with this mail? Like, even if that's a five second interruption, they're like that spool up is now reset. Or like you have to hold your newborn baby for 10 minutes while something. Exactly. You know, know, and obviously like, you know, I think it's easy to get (laughs) to get lost in that and feel like, oh, if I can't have four uninterrupted hours of productivity, I'll never make my dreams come true. Like you can do you can make stuff in the middle of a busy laundromat at, you know, peak time. Like if you've got your notebook with you anytime, you you can always do these things. But if you have the power to make set time where everyone knows, leave you the heck alone, do not talk for me for three hours to me for three hours. Like that is a discipline that will help you put yourself in a creative space. And you won't always have that. I think you're right. Sometimes you have to fight for the five minutes. I'm going to put a note down. Um, The thing that came to my mind that I think can really sabotage creative work is, is the striving for excellence in a way Mm. that you want to compare your work to other people who are really good at it. That's exactly, I I was going to call it expectation. Expectation as an enemy of creativity. This idea of what your thing is supposed to be. And and not through your eyes, right? Mm. What I'm getting at is I want to be great like Neil Gaiman, right? Like I'm not going to be happy until I write like Neil Gaiman. Well, you will never write like Neil Gaiman. Sorry, (laughs) it's not going to happen. Well, you have to write like you. Right. And so I think, and I've been through this at, multiple times in my life and and I think people can struggle with this forever uh 
the thing that you are creating should be unique to you. It should have your imprint. It should have your fingerprints on it. And it has to be protected. And the moment you start to overcommit to what you think they want, you are not in being true to the thing that is driving your mm-hmm. creative work. And that has been very detrimental. Um, and it's been hard for me over the years because, you know, having creative agency and doing client work, you are doing it for them. Like you have to do it for them, but you're really doing it for their customer, right? And so you, you're, you're doing a little bit of role play. When you're actually doing creative work that you're bringing something into the world that's inside of you and this is your your amazing creative thing, you do have to shut the world out and the expectations out so that you can cultivate the thing that is truly proprietary to what you want to do. And I think that's the way that you're going to be the most proud of your work as, as well. And it's going to have the most significant impact because people will not be expecting it. Is letting go of all your preconceived notions, not only about what's good, but what is supposed to be or what you're trying to yeah, do. Yeah, I think that made really good sense because you kind of expounded on the idea I wanted to bring, which was expectations, but it was really your own expectations of, you know, the greatness that could be of what you're trying to create. But you brought in that other point about other people's expectations too. So, you know, we have to we have to have this creativity from a sense of, of what? No expectation? Um, Just that creativity is the goal, mm. I think. That... Like any time that you are coming up with a unique thing that is that is progressing and adding more nuance to your own voice and your own style and that just every unique thing that you create is progress on that track. Yeah, and there's a pleaser mentality that can destroy the essence of your work. And, and then there is a level of excellence where you want to impress other people that will destroy your creative work. And I think staying true to your motivation... Um, of what you want to bring into the world and how you want people to feel when they engage with your work is the thing that you want to focus on. Um, and quite honestly, sometimes it's just what you want to like it just share the thing that you've made and don't even look at it through their lens. Um, I think it's good to do both, but uh, yeah, let, let anything be possible. We've, we've talked about this in game design conversations before where, a trap that we see ourselves falling into and definitely see other designers falling into when they talk about game design as a principle is the the notion that it's really easy and quick to set up these rules that you think exist and then operate inside them in a way that really hampers you from finding what you're truly capable of finding you know so i'm making a worker placement game you know and here are the rules of worker placement games established by the people who've made them before. Like, this is the way it's done. Now, how do I be creative and make my own worker placement games? Like, just let go of all the established stuff. Like, deal with that later. You know, put those on as lenses for when you're refining what you're making. Like, okay, you know, when I played this game, I felt like XYZ was really powerful and good. Does that change what it, you know, but, but do that later. Don't, let everyone else define for you the parameters of what you're making Hmm. and then operate inside of that. Yeah. Constructive discontent is really good Mm -hmm. to to look at what is and then to not be content with that, to add something to it or to, to add a perspective, I think is what people are hoping for. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the, the like root of creativity that people who 
do not consider themselves creative, overlook in themselves, that that judgmental eye to see something and, and have in your mind an idea of how you would have done it differently or how you would do it better, that that is evidence of your own creativity and seeing worth and value that could be brought into the world that has not been and that you know pursuing that is the goal. That's a good point. We are conduits for creativity. Don't clog it up with extra extra sensory information. Don't clog it up with other people's expectations. Just be a conduit. Just don't clog it. Don't clog There's conduit. No creativity yeah, don't, plumbers. Don't stuff other people in your conduit. Don't stuff other people in your... That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> don't stuff other people anywhere is really a good rule of thumb, in my opinion. People aren't to be stuffed. Jared, where should people be stuffed? Lockers, exclusively. <laughs> <laughs> It's my own personal experience. Can we start with Tom? <laughs> we do have lockers. Not big enough for Tom. <laughs> Truth. All right. So main topic for today is storytelling versus world building. Okay. This is a discussion that is happening in many creative spaces right now. And we pulled the community about it and got some feedback from them. So the, the direction that I want to take this overall conversation is defining storytelling and world building, comparing them, and um, then basically I'll figure out where to take us from there. Okay, so let's... And then I'll write in your crap. We'll, <laughs> exactly. We'll figure out what we're doing here with our lives. It's like, it's like with my children, you know, I can only give them about two steps at a time to follow, otherwise nothing will get done properly. So you have now received your two steps. Let's start with defining... That's really funny, actually. I was asking the kids to clean up their room the other day. Yes. And I told Clara two specific things to clean up, and she got very mad at me. She what? said, "She said, give me one thing at a time." <laughs> okay, jeez, Louise, it's true. <laughs> Cannot wait for that. Just the Kelly dolls. <laughs> like, never okay. mind the Legos. So let's start with defining storytelling. Why don't we? Okay, so what is the definition of storytelling? <gasps> let's start with Tom. I. So the non-answer to this question, I think, is that storytelling basically eludes definition like if you I've read a whole ton of books by writers and all of them have a very different definition of what storytelling is okay and I think most of the time it's because they're all trying to find a definition of what good storytelling is you know I I think a story at its most basic form is literally just a series of related events that doesn't mean that's a good story but that you know the plant grew is a story and here's five screenshots of the plant growing. Is that your you know, story? That I'm starting small. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we've rejected it. It's not going to get published. You just said Siri. <laughs> Siri's, Siri's like to help. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Shh. Um, now, I think a good story or a real story, if we want to take it there, is it's about change or a tragic lack of change. Like, what is the effect of that series of events on a person or a circumstance or a group of people. Something transformative, mm -hmm. yeah. Do you have an answer before I give a couple of these from the I community? I mean, sure, yeah. So my, my definition of storytelling would be setting up some dominoes and then imagining all the different cool ways that they could fall down mm. and then using whatever medium you've chosen to like walk another person through those series of cool domino fallings. Mm, I like that metaphor. 
Um, here's a couple answers from the community about what it was. So Paul W. said storytelling is about action, even if the action is inaction, mm. very similar to what you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthew w-, w. said storytelling is a journey. Uh, John N., storytelling is the main narrative. Um, Brian S., stories are the narrative. Eric H., storytelling is more guiding the reader down an unknown path. Okay, so that's the side of storytelling from everybody in the community. So a narrative, a journey, guiding them down that path. Aaron Sorkin talks about intention and obstacle, you know, which I think is like an age-old concept. But I'm looking at the stage, man. Yes. But, <laughs> but you know, it's... Speaking my language. There, there are, you know, characters have an intention. The story is them trying to get past the things that are preventing them from completing whatever this intention is. And does that change them? How does it change them? Do they get to fulfill what they're trying to do? Do they fulfill something different? Okay. So now I'm going to flip it a little bit and ask about world building. So let's kind of define what world building is. Mark, you get to start this one. What is world building? Go. So like storytelling, world building has a broad, diverse range of ways that it can be viewed. I think... I think a lot of people default to the setting that the story lives in. Um, I tend to think that world building can be much larger than that. Um, And I think that a world can have many settings in it in which there are many stories. And the way that those settings are connected can be its own story. So the world building can be its own story. Um, And how that relates to its setting is a whole other thing. But... um, the setting and the environment is very important in creating a stage where I think people can relate to the story, which I think is really important for storytelling. If people aren't relating and you're not bringing something new and interesting, um, showing the audience something that they've never seen before, I think then there's really no excitement, there's no drive, and people don't really feel engaged. So the setting, the world, I think is really important, but building the world is in some ways telling a story. And and that's the way I look at it, and I think some people disagree with that. Yeah, to, to modulate my... Yeah, I do. <laughs> no, no, to, to modulate, Very much disagree. <laughs> to modulate my analogy to work with what you just said, a world building is setting up the dominoes, imagining that they have already fallen, and now here is where mm. we're at. And what are all the implications of all of those events that I just imagined happening, or different rules or facts about this world? And I think that world building, more than storytelling, is just seeing the web of interactions and taking every like mindful decision that you make and taking it to its limits of how could this possibly affect every other thing that I've said. One thing I think is important that you said is the rules and facts. I think, yeah. World building to me is just the facts of the place or yeah. the mm-hmm. facts of the environment. You know, so you've got, you have the, you know, the setting, like the actual environment, the landscape, the, you know, whatever actual nature element of the place. And also the culture of whatever people group exists in this story. It's just the facts with no narrative whatsoever, you know? And so world building, an example we used in a conversation a while back was, you know, you a piece of world building is to say, you know, so there's a world and it's like earth, except dogs can talk and dogs only speak Farsi. Right. Like mm-hmm. that's just facts, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but now they imply a whole bunch of story. So what happens because right. of that? Mm-hmm. It's also a variable, right? So mm-hmm. if we were shooting this podcast, you know, in a sauna, or in a meat locker, 
we'd be having a different don't go this life time. goals. <laughs> These things now we were going on on my, site. My first thought as soon as you started lifting off, listing off places, I'm like a donut shop. Yes, a donut shop. We could do this in a donut shop. <laughs> we have donuts in a meat locker. <laughs> Is there cheese in the donut shop? No, that's a different podcast. Or it's the donut shop that Lacey will open. (laughs) Jared, what is Lacey's like view on cheese and meals? Lacey's view on cheese and meals is that all food are vessels to transport cheese to her mouth. So imagine a world in which all (laughs) things are a vessel to transport cheese into my mouth. That's the world I've built. So all things in the world exist to put cheese in you. Yes. I have so. some stories already. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about monster trucks. Um, yeah. <laughs> some of the same people who talked about storytelling, um, when they defined world building, defined it as world building is an environment. World building enriches the narr- narrative by giving it structure. World building are the facts. Um, and one of my favorite things that somebody said is, it's Paul W., the art of active world building, no matter what the scale, begs for the creation of story. The human mind will create stories with whenever a space-time is presented. So all you have to do is, is present a space-time, and a story just begs to be revealed. We, we do a lot of this in the company, obviously. We do a lot of world building. And even when I did research for this about how Google is going to present me with ideas about what world building and storytelling are. It is almost always that the story is the gem and the environment is the package that it's in or the world is the package that it's in. And I disagree. I think that they are in relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that your story Mm. can affect the environment or the world that it's in and vice versa. And... I think they have to be co-developed as if they are own. They're they're like two versions of story, in my mind. And maybe I'm crazy. Yeah, I think story has this incredible potential to impact people. But your ability to create a cool world is what causes a lot of these really impactful, um, like properties and uh, it's like magnetism. To, to exist. Like you know, Harry Potter, Star Wars, all these things. The world is so cool that I could imagine how I would exist within it. And that's what keeps me coming back, not specifically the choices and events that happened to Harry Potter specifically. But I think, I think what you're saying, though, makes the argument that what matters is story. Like, we are storytelling creatures. It's one of the first things we did when we developed consciousness Crawled or out whatever. Of the mud. Like, <laughs> immediately storytelling. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, the example you just gave was you making your own stories based on an environment, but it's still the story that you're connecting to. Mm. You know, if I said, there is a wizarding school, like, you immediately start telling a story in your head about why that matters, mm-hmm. but the fact that there is a wizarding school doesn't mean a dang thing. It's it's the stories that we tell or that are shared with us that resonate with us. It's the story that matters, and world building is a foundation on which stories can be built, but world building in and of itself is kind of meaningless. And what's interesting is I think you can have world building without story. Your mind tries really quickly to apply story to it, but you can theoretically have world building without story. I don't think you can have story without world building unless you do some really abstract weirdness. I've had a thought about this. I think that you absolutely can divorce them. How it, 
specifically in regards to story. So a perfect example, if I, write, if I come up with a story about an event that did not happen to Lewis and Clark, but I do not change any aspects of the universe, just like this, this mudslide I say happened but did not happen, that that is a story that I have not needed any world building to create. But at a certain point, once this story has gone on long enough and the events in the story impact like further on events in the story and it becomes self-referential, all of a sudden the story is now like an alternate universe, an alternate world that has its own implications. But that story still had a pre-existing world already. Yeah, there are still human beings named Lewis and Clark. And right, but that doesn't require world building on your part. Oh, I see. That, what I'm you're saying, saying that not the act right. of storytelling without world building. Build it. I see. Okay, so a world was built, but you can still story tell off of that because world building had been done before. Yeah. That, okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So why are we so drawn to tell stories? What? Why? Why store? Why are we storytellers? Relation. If you can relate to something. It's almost like a role play. When you watch a movie, you're watching how humans respond in different situations and you're relating that to your life and, and what you might do or what you have done or what you've seen other people do. And there's something interconnected about us that brings us together through story that I think is one of the big differentiators between story and world. Because um, world is the frame, right? I just think that there's a little bit more nuance to how they're connected uh, and I think that proper or, or really, maybe not proper, but really insightful world building will allow the world to change its story as the story changes. And you could argue that that's just story and it's not world building. But I think, I think as, as you go through life and you have events occur and the things that we do and say impact everything else and they impact our environment and they impact each other – the environment changes, right? So the world changes. Is that part of the world building or is that part of the story? And I think the answer is both. It is, definitely both. What I like, you know, let's think about Vindication as an example, right? The way that Vindication's world was built um, really is prime for the interactivity of story and world. When you talk about the idea that magic is awakening on this island, well, then there's an awakening already happening within the world, and the world is the environment, but the story is going to keep going on and interacting with the environment, and I think that is is something people really enjoy to uh, take part in. Why why are we storytelling creatures? I, I I loved that question. What's what are your thoughts, Jared? My answer on that is that storytelling is how we how we relate to take a Thornton Wilder quote that was about the stage. He said that, you know, theater is the quickest way for one human to show another human what it means to be a human. Mm. And that that applied to all different mediums, and each medium just has, like, a different speed at which it can show you what it means to be human. And that when I, when I tell a story, that that is not only me, like, processing the, 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 the actual story, but it is also allowing this other person to, to feel what I'm feeling in the story, like a perfect example... Okay, so Vsauce, really awesome YouTuber, did a video where he spent three days by himself inside this like perfectly white room. And the thing that he missed the whole time was talking through every thing that he yeah. was experiencing. And he had this takeaway that you only experience something halfway while you're experiencing it. And that the other half of experiencing something is when you share it and you're able to have that moment of like going over it with someone else. And I think that story is just like a fictional version of that. 
is us relating about like through things that didn't actually happen. Do you think that that consciousness begs for um, un to understand and to be understood? To understand and to be understood. It's like the reason communication exists, right? The reason we started grunting at each other, mm -hmm. you know? Can mm -hmm. you understand what I'm pointing at? You're saying that we're supposed to have progressed past that <laughs> stage. I, I think that you're right. I think that life is one giant process of processing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, engaging with story is the act of not only processing things that you have experienced and felt and working through them, but also, you know, by osmosis, experiencing things that other people have gone through to learn more about what it is to be human, about your own experience. It's, it's really interesting. There's a, like, if you hook someone's brain up when they, to, you know, sensors and stuff, if you do a science thing at them. And I'm glad then, that's what we're hooking their brain yeah, up. Yeah, just it hook them up anything. to science. It could have been anything. You know, yeah. And, and then they read a book or they watch a movie or whatever. They're, the chemicals in their brain behave in a way that is a you are experiencing that story as you read it as if you were experiencing those events now obviously not to the same degree but you experience as a participant the story that you're taking in your brain's not just shut down like there there you you know, and that's why when you watch or read really traumatic things, like that does have a minor trauma impact on you because you just, to a degree, experience those things as a participant. And depending on what you've gone through in your life, that might be a very necessary and helpful and cathartic way to move through and process and in a safe way, re-experience and think about and reframe things that have happened or that you're curious about or whatever. But we do experience stories as a participant, which is a very fascinating concept. Yeah, that's why people jump in scary movies. That's why they cry in sad movies. I mean, there's an emotional, mental, psychological engagement that we relate to each other and events. And I think, I think that's very significant. And I think that's why people, there's an entertainment part of that. And there's a part of it that's just innately, we want to learn and we want to grow and we want to, experience things outside of our you know our normal existence and we reach for that's why the fast and furious movies are so popular <laughs> yeah no I, world building there but enough story has gone on that it can right. self-reference and be a world and <laughs> same, to itself the same world <laughs> you know mark when we were talking about just creativity earlier and the enemies to creativity and and some of the things that you said within there were just talking about how you think about how it will make people feel this is the same concept we're going over here then, is that the stories that we're telling and the reason we're telling story at all is to translate feeling from one, do you feel this? I feel this. When this happens, I feel this. Do you feel this? Mm -hmm. When cheese gets put in my mouth, I feel great. That's all. <laughs> That's rule three. Describe your experience with cheese. Great. Describe the delivery method. Yes. I... I agree with that. I, th I think uh, as people relate to those types of things, something triggers inside of them, right? And I have cheese stuck in my head and I can't get it out. I'm thinking about Havarti. Um, it's a good cheese. 
I think I think when you're when you're writing story or telling story, it's very important to allow the viewer to tr- to make that translation and not try to dictate that. Um, I think you can lead someone in a direction and and then set them loose. But like Alfred Hitchcock, he always said he never shows the monster in his movie because the monster is always bigger in your mind. And I think that that is a powerful tenet um, to keep in mind when you're storytelling. Um, I think you can also address that through world building. But and again, maybe maybe there's a larger discussion there. But I think and it probably has to do with the obligation of the of the creator or the artist. But the expectation of the user should always miss the mark from what you actually deliver. Like nobody should ever be able to predict what you're doing. If that I think if that happens, you're probably not as effective a storyteller as you hope you would be. Well, because people won't fe- genuinely feel something if they know it's coming. Don't you think? Don't you think feeling is a is a reaction to experience and you're not really experiencing something if it's if you've already conscripted it, right? If it's if it's too scripted. And it's not satisfying. To, to to learn something that you already knew, right? You already know what you know. And, and so what we're interested in is in growth. And when you can, when you have a twist in a movie that you didn't see coming, it's much more satisfying than being able to predict, to, to predict the end of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not satisfying at all. So, I don't know. I yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think there's, there's room for both, though. Because I think sometimes the reasons that we enjoy stories is because we get to experience the things that are happening and sometimes we're just hungry to experience a certain thing like Mm -hmm. you might be watching such and such a movie for the 10th time because you just want to be reminded that there is love and warmth in the world because your life has none of that right now and this movie Mm. lets you experience that and even though you know it's coming and now not to disagree with anything that you just said but I think that there is room for both there's different different types of stories, different approaches to story mm-hmm. for different goals. You're yeah. right. You changed my mind on that. And, you know, some storytelling is designed specifically with the impact of people who are not the specific, like, storyteller in mind. Perfect example I'm thinking are, you know, tons of open world and free roam video games or Dungeons and Dragons where, you know, the it, it is set up and the the draw as a consumer of this medium is to be an active participant in the story to be a mover and shaker. And, you know, it, talking about what Mark said about, you know, the stuff that we leave in and stuff that we leave out, it's very interesting in situations, especially like D&D, where it's a very collaborative experience that, you know, sometimes the, the details that you accidentally leave out or that you leave out during your description of a situation, all of a sudden in every single player, they all now have this knowledge about the world and what's going on and they have all come to this conclusion even though it wasn't necessarily exactly what you thought of and allowing them to run with that instead of trying to say, no, you guys have misunderstood what I was trying to say. I was thinking this other equally cool thing but because I thought it, I want to make sure that you guys hear it even though that thing is just as cool if not cooler. And And what happens is everybody has a different thing in their head mm-hmm. right when i say cat what what color is yours right i use this example it's a lot orange. yours is orange mine's mine's purple with yellow no it's spots. not it is your cat can't change every time i hate cats <laughs> and i hate purple wow unsubscribe <laughs> um, what's what's fun about D and we've talked about skyrim in this arena before is mm-hmm. the idea that sometimes and we take this design 
with this approach to our game design, the trick is to give people agency to tell the story that they need to experience right now. And, you know, so in D&D, you know, here is a world, Skyrim is that way, you know, mm -hmm. here's this amazing, giant, robust thing, go do whatever you want, I mean, go encounter it's and not do. robust. And if you haven't played Skyrim before, it's not robust. Continue. <laughs> Fair Famous for the bugs. You Continue. stand corrected. I understand. Full of bugs. Robust. Um, <laughs> Robust. Um, but, you know, it's the goal is still storytelling, but you've given people a platform to find the story that they specifically need as opposed to prescribing a story for them. And sometimes the prescribed story is just right, but other times you need something a little different. You need to go on a journey of discovery. And that's what D&D is a lot of the time, is you don't even know what freaking story you need right now, but you, you just engage, and slowly that story just develops based on the way you're behaving, mm -hmm. and you end up experiencing exactly what you need to experience or something that surprises you in, in a way that, you know, something a little more guided wouldn't necessarily deliver every time. So what makes a story really compelling? Depth. <laughs> Depth, I think, is good. Again, I think it, you know, what we would have to define compelling, as, you know, what is the, what are you trying to accomplish with that story? I mean, I think as a storytelling maxim, it's something is most compelling when everyone has very clear, when characters have very clearly defined objectives and things in the way of those objectives and you can see the arc of their development Mm -hmm. Yes, that's depth. But the, the story, the thing to me that makes a story compelling is what happens in here and in here while that's being presented. It's not even what the author did. It's not what the creator did, the director did, the actor did. It's what I'm doing, right? It's what I bring to it. You mean as the viewer or reader or whatever? I hate that movie. I love that movie, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's because of what they brought to it. And we've, we've talked a little bit about this before, too. And that is really interesting for an author or a creator to think about who is this for, right? And you don't know the answer to that because you might design it for this group of people or this tribe and find that they don't care for it. And these other people that came out of the woodwork would be like, this is us. This is our thing, right? That's really interesting to me. That's the way I see it. I've... Maybe a, maybe it's just a Mark thing, but when no, I, I... I mean, that's what makes the experience compelling, right? Is that mm -hmm. what Yeah, but see, what that turns into is I absolutely adored that story. And then people ask why, and then you start to extrapolate all the things that went on in here and mm -hmm. in here. And and some of that is credited to the author or the, or the creator because they maybe ha did that by design, but it would be different for me than it would for Jared, right? Jared had this experience, and it's different than mine. Maybe we both loved it, but for completely different reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think defining that word compelling as like the allure or how this particular piece of entertainment or media, uh, not appeals, but how it, it aligns with the things that get me going, that get my mind racing, that I get excited about, and you know, the things that I, that I love are compelling to me. 
Well, what I want to know is, was this conversation compelling to anyone else? As we're as we're coming to close and wrap up this conversation, I'm just curious from the people who are listening, how much of this resonated with you? Are are we right? How far off are we? Are humans just telling stories for uh, generations to try to understand and be understood? What have, what have we missed in this conversation? I feel like every time we finish one of these conversations that like I always have this sense that someone who's been listening could just walk into the room and be like, listen, here's the, here's the actual truth <laughs> that you guys are all dancing around like buffoons. So if you have the actual truth Please that we've all the been, an- been dancing around. Well, that was me at home and now I'm here on the couch. So. <laughs> Save a buffoon. So, uh, sincerely, if this conversation resonated with you and you have something to add to it, we would love to hear it. Um, we have, we'll have a post about this in the Outpost community, and we'll, we'd love to continue the discussion overall. Um, share it with a friend if you have any friends. Uh, otherwise, you can just come back to us again uh, next time. We'll be here. I love that that has become a theme of our show. <laughs> share it with a friend. Do you have a friend? <laughs> Oh, makes me happy. But we thank you so much for your time listening with us and um, laughing at us. And I am grateful for you three, of course, for the time that you spent thank with you. us. And Havarti. And, and for cheese. If you have been a listener of the show, we are now producing it on video. And portions of it will be available on our YouTube channel. So check it out. Yes. Orange okay. Nebula. Thank you so much for your time, everyone. Um, stay inspired. Keep telling stories. I build those worlds. Stay in school. <laughs> <laughs> that too. No we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.